in our individual lives at any time can turn to it. Lord, today we have it on our phones, pads, computers, and probably a printed copy very close by. And so we thank you that it is the authority of God. It is the very exact and precious, infallible words that we can trust. And Lord, even in difficult passages such as the rebuke that we see happening to the church in Corinth, we can still learn and understand what was going on there and make application to our own lives so we do not follow a poor pattern. But Lord, we thank you that there's so many here that really do love the word and they're drawn here. They're drawn here to worship and to study together and to love one another. And we pray that that brings uh, glory to you and, and you find great joy in our gathering here today. Lord, we do thank you for so many that gather around the world, locally here and across the United States and throughout the continents of the church called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessed thing to think about that so many of our brothers and sisters are meeting in any, everything from open air to grass uh, huts to concrete buildings to open fields, Lord, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your family is large, Lord, and we thank you that you've made us a part of that. We look forward to gathering someday, but until we do, may we be diligent in our pursuit of you, pursuit of your likeness of your son, and the love of your word. Now, Lord, bless the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our text this morning, you will find a clear change of tone if you had not caught that in the scripture reading there. Chapter 11, verse 2, he started into head coverings. And there we see where Paul praises the Corinthians as he deals with a sensitive subject, somewhat cultural in their time there. But he was dealing really about the role of worship and gender. I think that's such an important thing. If you missed that sermon a few weeks back, I would ask you to go back and really look at that. It is a problem in the American church and uh, with the understanding of why gender, God made gender the way he made it. It brings him ultimate glory, and we should be very, very careful that we do not stray from the word of God. I think one of our BFGs, Brian Giacunto, was teaching on that today in his BFG. What an important truth. It's not even in our doctrinal statement. But now the Apostle Paul is turning his attention to a very critical part of the New Testament, and that's the celebration of the Lord's table. This is a beautiful thing that he's given to us. And he's not happy, though. He is not happy the way the Corinth church has handled the, ta the table, and you can hear it in his language as he speaks to them. Now, we believe, we, the church of Jesus Christ, believe that God gave two very clear, significant ordinances to the church. And there are ways that we physically proclaim the gospel, right? We do this regularly. It, we, we show that we are identified as true believers. We, we, we show it in pure worship of just honoring the Lord Jesus for his death, burial, and resurrection. And it brings the church great joy. I love the Lord's table and I love baptism. Those are the two ordinances. Of course, baptism is this public identification that Christ has saved them. We love these, uh, these opportunities when we see these. As people stand in the waters of baptism, they give all glory to the Lord that God has saved them, and they're identified in the Lord. They are not, they were, they, they've died, their old person has died, they're now risen with Christ. They have a new identity in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful ordinance. The second is the Lord's table, and this is what we would define a spirit-filled remembrance of our God and Savior's finished work 
on the cross. And so both these ordinances have high priorities here at Riverbend. We, off, we do them often, uh, we, and we believe that they are something that God wants us to do. Communion we had last week, it was a joy to sit and have Pastor Jason lead us in communion and partake in that. October 16th, we have our next baptism. What a beautiful thing. Please put that on your calendar. It's in the evening. What a great worship service that is. But these are non-negotiables, right? They're commands from the Lord. And every, I think every true believer should long to be involved with both of them. You should look forward to the Lord's table. Look forward to baptisms. Now, when it comes to the Lord's table, we believe this is a form of worship that, that again, has great priority here. It's not something we hurry through. Um, we don't tack it on at the end of a service or move it along real quick so we can get to the preaching. We believe the Lord's table weaves into everything we do. The way we worship by song, the way we fellowship together. We preach often, you'll catch it, we'll preach right into the table. We'll take those truths that we learn and we'll tie them in to the truth of the Lord's table and we enjoy doing that. Now, as we handle the rest of chapter 11 here over the next couple of weeks, I believe you're going to go through some things with me because I'm going through them as I study. You know, one, you're going to be very encouraged, especially next, next week, as we remind ourselves what the real table is about. I think you'll be challenged. I think as Christians, sometimes we can come to the table not with the right mindset. We might, we might be even admonished a little bit through this. But overall, we want to understand that the text is examining the poor example of the church in Corinth, that they were misusing what God meant for worship. They were using it for self-indulgence. And Paul, again, is not thrilled with what they're doing, and he comes at them very directly. Now, remember, the letter to the Corinthians is filled with rebukes. We've seen that all along, right? They've abused truth that's been taught to them so Paul has to go back and correct these things. It's been a year and a half. Um, they, they grasped the doctrine when he was there. Many were saved, but they have migrated away from the truth. And now, not only have they migrated from truth, they're migrating from practice. So if you get truth wrong, your practice will go wrong as well. And so Paul is after him, them, and he wants these abuses to be recognized. And he's seeing the perversion now of doctrine all coming out in the way they handled fellowship in the Lord's table. From our text, it's not difficult to understand that there's a background of problems here. You'll see as we go through this today, this week and next, that there was gluttony. There was drunkenness. I think there was even racism. There's self-centeredness. There's certainly divisions and factions between them. There's class divide that you begin to see happening here in this church. And I think what's worse when I study this is you begin to understand there is a disregard for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and it comes out of the way they handle the table. And that's heartbreaking. And I'm sure it was heartbreaking to the Apostle Paul as he had to deal with this. Now it's not hard to recognize the demeanor of the Apostle here, right? As Pastor Jerry read that text. You can see that strong language. And you, you realize these verses 17 through 22, which is our text this morning, um, are, are strong, aren't they? But there's also results to them. Just drop down to verse 29 and 30. I want you to just be reminded. We'll get into this more next week. But Paul has to say, He who eats and drinks 
eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The body of Christ, the body of the church. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Look at verse 30. For this reason, many, not just a few, the Bible says many among you are weak and sick and the number sleep. I mean, they died. So I believe for a historical context to get our mind around here, so we've got to go back to the Lord's table. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and just turn back to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. This is the night before his death. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover extensively the view at the table. I believe John alludes to it in chapter 13 of John. But all of the writers weigh in on the Lord's table here. Look with me at Luke 22, starting verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, there, clearly, there's a meal going to take place before the introduction of the table. So there's a pattern there that's starting to develop that Jesus is going to do here, and the apostles are going to pick up on this, right? Verse 16, For I say to you, I shall never eat again until the, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share this among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Look, brothers, and sisters, there's something happening here. There's something coming. There seems to be the end of something happening here. Jesus has said, I'm not going to do this again with you. This Passover, this understanding of what's going on, I'm, I'm not going to do this again to the kingdom. You begin to understand the Lord is introducing a beautiful new teaching. And so on the night before the Lord's death, he gathers these disciples. They eat they eat a meal together called the Passover meal. But this time there is a massive change coming. Now, historically, the Jews gathered for Passover, right? They celebrated the Passover. This was the remembrance of God freeing them after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they would have a meal of thanksgiving and they would mark the remembrance of the plagues that God brought on Egypt, and particularly the last plague, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. They would remember that they were to take a, a lamb and it was to live with them and, and be with them, and they were to raise it, and then they were to slaughter it and put its blood on the doorpost. And because of that blood, there would be a passing over. The angel of death would pass by them because there was a substitute. There was a lamb. There was an innocent substitute that gave its life for them. And then they would eat that lamb with unleavened bread and herbs, and they would be dressed, and they'd be ready to go. And they thus would commemorate the deliverance that God gave them from Egypt. This was something they did constantly. And through the Passover meal, God, listen, God reminded the Israelites and even the Jewish person today that he is a God who saves and so the Passover still has a beautiful truth to it. He saves, he delivers, he redeems people out of bondage. It's a great truth there, a great application to those. And I think what is extremely dangerous, though, as we think about Passover and the Orthodox Jew today or, or anyone else who wants to, suffer, uh, to, to celebrate the Passover, 
without seeing the fulfillment that that was pointing to, without seeing the fulfillment that, that was only accomplished in Jesus Christ as the final lamb, think about this, they have to pass right past the cross as they go back to an Old Testament event. And so many of them miss Jesus. And the night before his death, Jesus is putting a conclusion, a final stamp to the Passover because he now becomes the final Passover lamb. And I think what Jesus does in Luke and the other gospel recording, uh, recordings is he is taking this remembrance in this meal. Now think about this. And he's transforming it into a new meal. The one in you and I celebrated last week. And we'll do again soon. The communion table, in many ways, I want you to think about this, sums up the biblical theology of the Old Testament. It rushes us all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve had sinned and there was the promise, of the, uh, a promise from God that he would crush the one, the evil one who lied. And he would bring forth one from their own womb, from their own seed that would crush that. And then lamb upon lambs, uh, you can't miss Abraham in Genesis 22 at the, at the mount there with with his son Isaac, and Isaac saying, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, we even have a knife. <laughs> we have no lamb, he said, God will provide. And you know the scene there is beautiful submission of Isaac to his father. He's about ready to slay his own son. He, Hebrews reminds us that he knew he had to raise his son from the dead. Was, he was going to be that sacrifice. And yet there, in the, in the last moment, there is a, a male ram caught in its, with its horns a thicket around its head and becomes that substitute and lamb after lamb after lamb we see in the Old Testament. And so I think the communion table, when we look at it, is really just this beautiful summing up of biblical theology. So Jesus is that final lamb. It's his blood that cleanses our sins once for all. Jesus is the bread of life. And in him you have no more spiritual hunger, Right? Meaning, you, not that we hunger for truth, but we don't hunger for another salvation, do we? If you, if you know Jesus in this room as your personal Savior, you're not looking for another one, are you? It isn't Jesus plus something. So you find satisfaction in him as the bread of life. He's the drink, isn't he? When you drink in the truth of Christ, you're spiritually quenched forever, aren't you? Oh, you thirst no more, do you? And when we go back to redemptive history, look, and we don't go back to Egypt. We don't go back to the wilderness. We don't go back to the law. What do we do? We go back to the cross. <laughs> That's what we go back to. That's what the table teaches us to do. We go back to that cross and remember what he has done. And listen, brothers and sisters, old redemptive types in the Old Testament are just that. They're types. They're not the real thing. And for forever, man has wanted to worship the types. Do you ever think of why the Bible says that, that Satan and, and the angels fought over the body of Moses? I mean, there's a lot of theological wrangling about that, but here's my thoughts. They'd love to have that body because that's what they knew people would worship instead of Christ. 
And so we look at these types as type because Christ is the greater prophet. Christ is the greater priest. Christ is the greater king. He's the greater bread. He's the greater drink. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater intercessor. He's the greater substitute. He's the greater covenant. He's the greater fulfillment of all of those things, right? And when you miss that, you start to look for other things and you, take, you don't take the things that he does seriously. And this was the problem in Corinth. And so the night before his death, Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it in front of them and he gives it to his disciples he says take eat this is my body and then he takes a cup and when he given thanks he gave it to them and he told them to drink and he said this is this cup is which is poured out for you is a cup of my new covenant in my blood so in essence christ was saying this is a new day this is a new era the old covenant has now been completed and the writer of hebrews says he had to fulfill the first so he could usher in the second And yet so many people want to keep running back to that first. And they find themselves starving and thirsting. In essence, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and all of the gospel recordings are reminding us over and over, Christ is the fulfillment of all those things. The fulfillment of the Passover. And so the apostle sees this as a non-negotiable ordinance of the church, and he sees this that this must be handled in a worshipful way. And when he sees what's going on in Corinth, he just loses it in a sense, right? I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're making a mockery of the table, of the fellowship. Now it's clear that the apostle was so moved by the words of the demonstration of our Lord in his table that the apostle's made this a regular concurrence in in the church. Look with me at Acts chapter 2. Turn there. I mean, you have have the 12 there. Judas will depart from there. He'll be replaced with uh, Matthias. But but it's, it's clear there was an impact. Those men knew something was happening. There was a change going on. And though they say that Paul will show up at Passover feast and so forth like that, they never preach the Passover. They preach the Passover lamb all the time. And it becomes part of their regular worship. Now, chapter 2 is the birth of the church, right? We have Pentecost 50 days after um, the Passover is the Feast of Weeks. Um, it's a first fruits type of feast. And all are gathered in, and God just does this amazing thing. The Spirit of God falls upon man. Thousands of people are saved Peter's preaching the gospel, and these people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They give their own altar call. They say, what must we do to be saved? They're calling themselves to repentance. And God just saves masses of them over and over and over again in the first chapters of Acts. But drop down to verse 41. Let's pick up the church in the early stages of the early church. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. They were, that day, added about 3,000 souls. Now look at what they're doing. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, one, to fellowship, two, to the breaking of bread, three, and to prayer, number four. Well, these four areas that Luke is recording in Acts here are extremely important to the formation of the church, and they're extremely important to us to this day. First, he talks about the apostles' teaching. This is what's going on. We call this the didache. It's the word there. It means that this is doctrinal instruction that would be given every time they gathered. They had revelation from God. They were inspired 
Many of that's recorded here. And they're teaching, the apostles are teaching what they receive from the Lord, not their own stuff. They say that over and over. The next thing we see the early church doing it is fellowshipping. There's the word koinium, and even know that means there's a participation, there's a fellowship of like-mindedness, there's a sharing and contributing is the idea of the word here. And fellowship is true ministry, and fellowship is true worship. When you get together with the brothers and sisters, whether that's a community group, a small group, church, whatever it may be, Sunday school, BFGs, things like that, it brings glory to God. He wants us fellowshipping. We are his children. I've said this so many times. Don't you love it when your children get along? Makes dad and mom really happy, doesn't it? He loves fellowship. But it's the third one that catches our attention in relationship to our study here in 1 Corinthians 11. It is the breaking of bread. And this seems to be more than just fellowship because otherwise he would include that in the statement of fellowship. I believe the breaking of the bread, bread in, includes the Lord's table here as well as this love feast, this fellowship meal the early church shared in. Now, the term most likely comes, where did this, this come from, this Lord's table, the breaking of bread, where does this come from? Well, the term most likely came from the night of Jesus before his death, right? He broke bread and gave it. That's, where else would that term seem to come from? It, it seems to be most likely this is where the disciples have it. Now, before I move on, I want to mention prayer because I know I'm going to get an email. <laughs> oh, prayer is such an important part, isn't it? Prayer is another communion with the Lord, isn't it? And you and I do it privately. Sometimes you pray while you're commuting to work. Sometimes you pray in your closet. Sometimes you pray with your spouse or somebody close or friends. And sometimes we pray collectively or corporately together. Prayer is such a vital part and it's extremely important to the daily life of a Christian and it's vital to the local church. But for our study, I want to go back to that third one. And I want to ponder the effects of this breaking of bread that had upon the church. Now, if you look with me at verse 43 in Acts 2, I'm still there. You can see these four effects, what they had on the church, particularly this breaking of bread. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Man, they're, they're all together, right? They're hearing doctrinal teaching. They're, they're fellowshipping. They're breaking in bread and, and having a fellowship meal together and remembering the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And, and they're praying together and they're sensing this awe. And the verse says, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Notice, through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who, who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their properties and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you can see the clear effects of this in the church. And see, this is what I think Paul's after. When he sees a church struggling, or I think even us as we look at our own church or try to help other churches or missionaries, when we see something struggling, it's these four areas that we come back to, right? Is the doctrine sound? Is it line up with the scriptures? Is there fellowship happening, true koinonia, where brothers and sisters love one another and they meet with one another and they meet each other's needs? Is that happening? 
Are they respecting the table together? Do they, do they see the table as a great remembrance, a great memorial of what the Lord Jesus has done, and the Spirit has inspired that and encourages you and challenges you to live for Jesus? And as the church praying together, communing with God through individual prayer and corporate prayer, that's how we examine churches. It's, it is a great recipe. How are we doing, church? Are these things that are, are done well here for the glory of God? And so as we look at this, we begin to understand these things. Now, the term breaking of bread, again, I don't think it's limited to the Lord's table. Um, I think this has to do with some of the meals they took forth. And I got thinking about this a little bit and, and did some reading on it. And it seems like throughout the centuries, particularly ancient and Middle Eastern custom, was to fellowship around food. And I thought, well... That's what Christians do too, right? We love to fellowship around food. We had a great seniors gathering yesterday, and man, there was like tons of food there. Um, it, it's, it's encouraging, right? And then we got out the word of God, and we, and we encouraged one another for a few minutes. But this certainly made its way into the church, this, this idea of fellowship around food. And so there, there was these like-minded believers, and they shared all in common, including Food. That's what they did. They came together. And so the breaking of bread was not just the table, but it was really sharing needs, uh, sharing food that maybe someone was needy there. And I think there was a lot of them. Now, as Christians, we normally pray before we eat food, right? Many of you will do this afterwards. You'll go out to lunch or you'll go home and have lunch. And, and um, somewhere along the line, somebody will pray, right? Um, maybe the head of the home. Um, uh, something will happen, you'll pray, and that kind of, that's the idea. Hey, we get to eat now, because we just prayed, now we eat, right? Isn't that how it works? Uh, that's kind of how we've been trained to do those things. Well, the same was true in the ancient culture. The head of the home, or in the case of the church, the local leaders would pray, and they would give thanks. They would literally, literally, the early church would break bread, and that would symbol to every, a signal to everybody, hey, it's time to eat. And when they came together, they would start often with a fellowship meal, and they would begin to fellowship over a meal. Most uh, conservative theologians that I read on this believe that the breaking of bread was um, not just the start of the fellowship meal, but it also referred to the table. And so this fellowship meal was known as a, a, what they call a love feast, agape feast, right? They, you've heard that term. Um, today we know it was a church potluck, Right? I mean, we all, some of us grew up in small churches, you had potlucks, you know, the, micro, the, um, the crock pots were lined in the fellowship hall. You go, somebody goes, well, why can't we do that today? Because we probably blow every circuit there ever was <laughs> in order to do that. Um, but that gets done in small groups. We had a small group yesterday with our seniors. I, I've been to community groups, you guys fellowship. All of that happens, doesn't it? It's part of who we are. It's part of what we do. And so when this church came together, they would have this agape feast and and. And, and I, I don't like the word, I'd rather talk about fellowship meals because I don't like potlucks because I think pagans can do potlucks. I like that fellowship meal, right? And, and Bobby and some of the other pastors and, and some of the leaders get things together, usually in May or June. We have a big family day here where we have a great meal and we play and just spend time together. We usually do one in the fall and November as well. Those are times to get us together, and it's usually around food. Now, in Acts chapter 2, as you're still there, when you think about these dear people, many of these people didn't have much. Acts chapter 2 has all of these tribes, these different groups that are coming to Pentecost to celebrate the, 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 the booth of weeks and the, and the celebration of, of the first fruits. They're all coming there. And when they get there, God, in a sense, surprises them with the grace of salvation, right? 
Peter's preaching. They're hearing it in their own language. It's, it's, it's astounding what's going on. It's just miraculous, just like our own salvations. Well, well many of these people can go home. They're now followers of Christ. That'll get you killed. Many of them lost everything they had. And maybe some of them were from the area and they became followers of Christ and their families just said, yeah, we're done with you. That still happens around. I've met many, many Christians. I said, hey, is your family around? Well, they live around here, but they have nothing to do with me because I'm a Christian. I've had that told me so many times around the world. And this is what they were experiencing. So there's, so there's great need, right? The church has great needs and needs to be providing and they're caring for one another in this early church setting, uh, particularly those who have lost all for following Christ. And additionally, the early church has many slaves in it. They've come to Christ. Many of the historians that I read on this said the church was predominantly poor. It had many slaves within it. But they were having sweet fellowship at this time. In Acts chapter 2, there was a kindred spirit between the wealthy and the poor. And they were mingled together and they shared what they had and they brought great glory to God. But in the middle of this, look, meals are important. And if you're a slave and you only get left over whatever the master is or, or food is just, there's nothing really good about it. You're just surviving. This might have been the only good meal they had every time they came together. Now, what's attached to this fellowship meal was the celebration of the Lord's table. And between Acts 2 and Acts chapter 20, we now start to see where the fellowship meal and the Lord's table went from every day they came together in Acts 2 towards it seems that they started to do it on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, marking the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when they had their fellowship meal. They had the Lord's table, and then they had preaching. This is the way they lined things up. So you say, might say, well, where, where did that tradition come from? Well, I think first, because the Lord Jesus demonstrated, right? He, he ate the Passover meal, then he... He started the, the teaching of the Lord's table, communion, which we have today, right? So I think that's probably some of that background. And the Jewish believers were accustomed to the Passover and remembering the rescue. But now as Christians, they now saw that all completed in Christ. And now the Lord's table became the prominent aspect of worship. This is what they did. They go, well, what about the Gentiles? Well, I think the Gentiles had something very similar. Remember, Satan loves to copy things that God does with his people and then put a perversion on it, twist. He does that all the time. There's lots of, quote, churches meeting around the world today who, have, who look at Jesus as not God. They're false churches, they're false teachers, but guess what they do? They meet on Sunday morning and they sing some songs and someone gets up and talks. See, he loves to mimic these things is what he does. Well, that's what happened in the Gentile world as well. They would be raised in a pagan area. They would go to their pagan temples for worship. And they had a meal there. It was called Aranos. And this Aranos was this fellowship meal. And they would bring all this meat. They would offer it to the idols. They would cook it up. And they would have this big meal. And it was some sort of a festival. And then after that, they would worship their gods. <laughs> and so the fellowship meal was... Uh, part of cultural, right? Both Jewish and Gentile and the early church seemed to adapt it here. Now, Sunday would look like this for the early church, though. They would come to church. They would come to a meeting place. It may be in somebody's backyard or on a rooftop somewhere. And they would come in, and the first thing they would do is they would have a common meal together, which they called the love feast, 
uh, a fellowship meal. Then they would celebrate the Lord's table, and then they would have a sermon. That seems to be the protocol for the early church as we study some of the historians on it. And there, there's no prescribed order, right? If we were to have a fellowship meal after this, it's okay. We preach first and table and that. It's all right. There's no prescribed uh, order in the, in the scriptures. But, but the goal was always doctrinal instruction. It was always fellowship. It was always breaking of bread. And it was always prayer. That's where we see the healthy church operating. And you go, well, what went wrong in Corinth? Well, because of these factions and this man-centered desire, the early practice of the church had been come. Uh, become corrupted now, and Paul sees this. They've let the influences of the world, the festivals of the idolatry, those things had made their way into the church, and, and now the love feast, this, this meal, this fellowship meal, there were drunks at it. There was gluttonous people who were not sharing with others. And after this fiasco, think about this. After this meal that's a fiasco, they're not sharing. There's even people drunk. There's people that are hungry because there's no food left for them. Then they attempt to celebrate the Lord's table after all that. Oh, that's going to go well. And then somewhere after that, particularly in Corinth, they're going to have some kind of sermon that's done in a way where oratorical perfection, that would leave me out, would be the predominant teaching, right? The predominant thing is how well the person could speak, not the doctrine that they taught. This is the state of Corinth. And clearly Paul believed that there was sinful and disgraceful behavior that was offensive to God. You can hear it in here, can't you? And it resulted that many were sick, and some even were so sick they died. Verse 30, they dishonored the Lord's table. They were ultimately mocking and blaspheming the cross of Christ the way they were handling it. And Paul is saying that God has had enough, and you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Verse 29. And they believe that statement is, is not only just for the Lord's table, but I think it's actually for that love feast as well. People who couldn't afford to bring food... They were supposed to have this in common, and the ones who maybe had some resources would bring it. They, would, they were to share it together, but that's not how it was. The slaves sometimes had a hard time getting off of work. Sunday didn't mean anything to your master if you're a slave. And so them, some of them might have been late, and they would get to the worship service, and all the food would be gone. And I think what's so disturbing when you study Corinth is you go from this beautiful picture of Acts chapter 2, and they had everything in common together breaking bread. And you get down the road just a few years and they don't even wait for each other. There's drunkenness and self-centeredness. And we'll see next week that Paul has to give the most simple instructions. He'll say in verse 33, wait for one another before you eat. What are you, two? (laughs) Wait for one another. I mean, if you're having somebody over, or you invite me to your house, and I get there, you go, hey, Scott, I know you got hung up with some people after church, so we just ate without you. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably not going to be offended because, uh, okay, well, you know, I stop at Burger King on the way home, I guess. But it'd be a little rude, wouldn't it? So he has to say things like, wait for one another. Verse 34, if you're hungry, eat at home. You're coming here with this ravenous appetite that's controlling everything you're doing and you can't even wait for those 
who are still trying to get there. Now, I believe in verse 17, Paul begins with this heavy rebuke of the church of Corinth because they have obliterated what the fellowship meal was supposed to be, what the Lord's table was in chapter 11. It's going to lead him into chapter 12 to expose their abuse of spiritual gifts. They're abusing the body of Christ, the many members made up as one. He's going to use chapter 13 to show them that they have lost the true definition of love. And and because of that, they are not fellowshipping as God would want. They're not handling the table of God right. And they're mishandling spiritual gifts. And that will take them right to chapter 14 with prophecy and tongues. That's the book of Corinthians. It is not a book of how to speak in tongues and prophesy and all the things that it gets used for. It is a rebuke. And in the center of all of that is the doctrine of love in 13, where he's trying to break their hearts through a true definition of love so they would handle all these gifts correctly. Now, as you notice, Paul uses these strong languages. And let's go to point one. We're going to get there. (laughs) This is quicker. The perversion of the fellowship of the Lord's table creates a negative experience, not a positive one. For sure, look at verse 17 and 18 back in our text. But giving in this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that division exists among you, and in part, I believe it. Well, you can see, clearly he set out to correct these abuses, and you see he's coming after them, don't you? Notice the first part of verse 17. But in, in giving this instruction, I don't praise you. He, he praised them earlier. We talked about that. But, and he'd been encouraged. He's trying to encourage them in their role of gender to turn, return to that because that brings glory to God. But here is a different thing. And when it comes to fellowship in the table, Paul says, look at this, I do not praise you. And he's going to say it at the end, at the end in verse 22 as well. He uses this word instruction. The Greek word means to give order, to command something, to charge something to do. So this is not a suggestion. He's, he's not here suggesting some things. There's a real problem here. The, the, the Corinth church is not bringing praise to God. And so Paul can't be praised to them. They've distorted fellowship. They perverted the table. And there's a problem here. And look, I, I think that's really sad, don't you? The Apostle Paul is saying, instead of worshiping as a church family and enjoying the benefits of unity and edification, you gather and it's destructive and toxic. Anybody want to go? Want to go help church plant in Corinth? It's amazing. I think this is so sad. And think about that. In the Corinth church, Paul is literally saying the worst thing that you could possibly do for your spiritual life is come together. Isn't that what he's saying? Look at the verse. I do not praise you because when you come together, not for better, but for worse. You go, well, Scott, what about Hebrews 10, right? Well, it wasn't written yet, but it would have been understood. Hebrews 10 says, look, let us hold fast. Verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another's love and good deeds, not forsaking our, our assembling of ourselves together, which is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day coming. Isn't that great? Tom's reminded me of this many times. Verse 26. <laughs> Listen to this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. 
I think that's what he's talking about. You guys come together. It's not better when you get together. It's worse. And there's a tremendous amount of judgment goes on. There's separation. There's all kinds of things happening. And instead of provoking one another to love and good works, they've provoked one another to selfishness, gluttonous, drunkenness, and they blaspheme God through the table. They're divided into classes. They abuse the poor. They're consumed with hunger. And they handle the elements of the table irreverently. And then they wait for some kind of oratorical perfected sermon. This is a rebuke, brothers and sisters. It's a rebuke, and he's serious about it. Look at verse 18. When you come together as the church, I think that's a very sweet phrase right in the middle of this rebuke. That's, that's what the church does, right? That's the mark of the church. We come together. You can't say you're part of the church, but you never go. Oh, well, I'm part of this church. Well, I've never seen you there. Well, I don't go. <laughs> the church gathers, right? So, so I think there's some great truth here. When, when you come together as the church, right? We're the people of God. God's always saw the importance of gathering his people, whether it's the nation of Israel or it's the church. He always teach about the church. And this driving word here, ecclesia, this is the word church here. It's never used of a building. It's always used of God's people. We are the ecclesia of God. But then he says this, I hear that division exists among you. The word akuo is a here, and it's, it's, it's written in the Greek this way, I keep hearing over and over and over that division exists among you. It's just not like, well, hey, I heard somebody, maybe it was gossip, maybe it wasn't. He's saying, I hear this constantly about you, that you have division. The word division is uh, a word we get our English word schism from. Schismata is the Greek word. And it means division, right? It means strong opinions that separate people. It's used of the different sects of Pharisees and Sadducees as they went about. Jesus talked about that there was division after he had done such great things and he got up and spoke that he was the bread of life and he was the living water and the end, towards the middle of chapter 7 towards the end. And, and he says, all who believe in me will, will never thirst. And the Bible goes on to say, after that there was many divisions. Some said he was the Christ, some said he was a prophet, some said he was a heretic. I mean, all kinds of things. That's the word here. And, and Paul's saying that when you come together, I continually hear the voicing of strong differences between you. Instead of enjoying the worship and fellowship meal on the Lord's table and creating unity, you're divided. So Paul is exposing this factitious behavior. It's nothing new. Remember in the beginning, chapter 1, chapter 3, he says, he quotes them. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Paul. I am of Christ. This has been a problem, right? The church is divided. And so in the church of Corinth, there was division over personalities, social levels, right? There was probably class envy, doubtlessly racism that had made its way in there. I mean, the Bible says that God was saving people from everywhere, right? Galatians 3.28 says they, they were rich, they were poor, they were free, they were slaves, they were barbarians and Scythians. I mean, I mean, the Bible tells us of all that. Oh, man, we gotta, you know we have a barbarian in the church? Who's sharing with that guy? He'll eat the whole thing. This, this, this is what's happening, Right? They said, well, what, how does it get to this point? Well, Paul told the Thessalonica church, don't quit the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. I think that's so important because the spirit produces fruit, right? The first one is what? Love. <laughs> you, 
can't love a person enough to say, hey, let's wait till all the church is here before we bless this thing and break bread and eat and eat together as a family. There's no love in it. Galatians 5 reminds us that, that the flesh is warring against the spirit and the spirit against the war, and then it goes down to this whole list of things of the flesh, and right in the middle of that is factions and uh, divisions. That's, that's the mark of a flesh. But then he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, this great list that, that brings great unity that the law can't produce and brings the church together. So the result was they were being led by their flesh. That's what happened to Corinth. These things of the Spirit are, are quenched and they're fractured and their church really is mocking what God wanted them to have. And right in the close there of verse 18, he says, in part, I believe this. Maybe Paul knew that sometimes there's exaggeration there, but he says, in reality, I think this is very true of you. Second thought, there's a need for biblical division to expose heresy. So there's another side of this. Look at verse 19. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Well, in essence, Paul is saying the reason I believe that so much division is there is because God is behind at some level these factions that are happening so he can expose them and bring the people who are seeking truth to the top. That's what that verse means. And this verse helps you understand there's a deep problem here. In these factions of verse 9, um, this word, we get, our, we, we get actually our English word heresy from it, but it didn't carry quite the force it has today when we say the word heresy, but it labeled groups with strong opinions, and sometimes not always use good or bad, but, but, but shows that there's these factions and they've, they're, they're, they're apart. But in the context here in, in the Corinth church, he's exposing this selfish contention that was man-centered within the church. So Paul is saying, why is there these factitious behavior among you? You go, was he supporting sinful behavior? No. Notice at the front of the verse, he says, for there must be, it's a little Greek verb and a conjunction together, degar, it literally can be translated, it's necessary, this has got to be, meaning God is doing something here, he causes all things to work together, even things like this, he's not responsible for sin, but he uses this to expose false worship, and he brings those who are holding to the truth forward, and that happens all the time. Here, let me give you an example. If a movement started within our church that someone began to teach that Jesus isn't God, that he is a created being, I hope that there would be many among you who would rise up and say, that's not true. <laughs> right? See, this is the way the church works. We know our doctrine. We know what true fellowship is. We know the Lord's table. We pray together. We commune with God. And so when something that is not right comes up, we go, whoa. Man, that's, that's some kind of imitation. That's some kind of foreign something. That's not the real thing. And so Paul's saying, look, I'm praying that these factions bring out the approved. And the approved go, hey, this is not what God intended for us. And they begin to walk down that right biblical trail. The word approved is a beautiful word. It, it means someone who, 
who's walking in the Spirit of God with biblical integrity. Uh, Paul uses it all the time, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to pre- present yourself approved. There's our word to God as a workman, not ashamed, right? Actually handling the word of truth, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, they're entrusted with it. Hey, brother and sister, if you're saved in here, you've been entrusted with the gospel, and so when you hear a false gospel, what should you do? That's not right. Now, you might have to be careful. You've got to approach this thing speaking the truth in love, right? But you have to recognize this, and that's what Paul's after here. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. I think there were probably godly men and women in Corinth, and they were persevering under this very difficult trial. Maybe the ones who were saying, Paul, you can't believe what's going on here. The Bible says, for once he has been approved right? There's our word. He will receive a crown of life. And so there's times where, where it's difficult and you have to stand up and say, man, I love you, friend. You, you claim to be a brother in Christ, but your view of Jesus is not biblical. We can't get away from that. Jesus said, look, woe to those who become stumbling blocks. It's better that a millstone be tied around their neck. Look, God will bring to surface those who are factitious. If you are causing some kind of, fact, some kind of division, I, I don't know if anyone look at anybody, right? Okay. I praise God for the church. But man, when the Bible says, woe to the one who causes someone to stumble, boy, you better take heed of that. And so God was bringing to surface these factitious ones within this church. He was doing it by showing the approved, those who were humble and gracious, and they dealt with one another in a godly way so that they could stop heresy from spreading. And that's probably those who were coming to Paul and said, Paul, we love our church, but there's a big problem. You should see what the table looks like on Sunday. They don't even know what's going on because half of them are drunk. Third, despising God's church is the result of the perversion of his ordinances. Well, Paul doesn't hold back here in these next few verses. He tells them that their actions have been perverted by factions and arguments and differences of opinion. And it really all sums up to, listen to this, it is the lack of worship and the lack of awe of who Jesus is. And every time one of you and I struggle in sin and stubbornness or whatever it may be, there is a lack of worship and there's a lack of awe that takes place at that moment. And if we don't take care of it, we will live in that lack of awe for a while. And you'll lose your joy. And so now, Paul is after them. And next week, we're going to see where he is going to show them the beauty of the table and still give some warnings. But here, he still has some things to go. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Therefore, when you meet together, it's, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul is saying in your gathering that has ceased to resemble Christ's church, connecting it to the previous verses, you cannot call, your, call it the Lord's table because it doesn't resemble what the Lord commanded. The table is a reminder, a spirit-filled reminder of his death, burial, and resurrection, our forgiveness of our sins, that encouragement to help us live for Jesus. He says, it doesn't resemble that at all. You may be eating the bread, you may be drinking the cup, maybe you be going through the motions, but you are missing the table. I think that's what he's saying here. Because of that, you become 
deceived, you're, some of you are sick, some of you are dying. And this is why he says in verse 28 that a person should examine him or herself. See if there's selfishness, see if there's factitious behavior, see if you think this table, and, and this is where today, because of the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in so many places, they look at the table and they try to gain salvation through it. That's the greatest distortion of a table, in a sense, isn't it? It's works. It's Christ plus take this or do that or get dunked or walk that aisle or bloody your knees or whatever it is. It's not salvation. And we'll deal with that a little more next week, but look at verse 21. For in your eating and drinking, each one takes his own supper first, and the one is hungry and the other is drunk. What kind of meal is that? That one you want to show up to? You've got hungry and drunk people. Those with means, that what happened, they would grab the food, they'd go sit alone with their own little social groups and their own cliques, they'd consume all the food, while the poor would come and there would be nothing left while they were still working and probably slaves. So Paul is saying the poor man's hungry, the rich man's drunk. How do you call that a love feast? There's probably another name for it. And again, I said this earlier, but you look at Acts 2, and then you go to Corinthians, which is probably anywhere from somewhere about, unless I can figure, about 20 to 30 years, and this is where they're at. How'd they get there? Through this self-centered consumption of, of their own needs, and now they're a mess. Look at verse 22. What? <laughs> do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise, listen to this, despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not. Well, the situation Paul has just described I think filled him with just aspiration. I think he was just overwhelmed with what he was hearing, what was happening. And so he, he launches these rhetorical questions, right, to expose the obvious, obvious here. And, and Paul says, surely it, it, it cannot be that you, you, you're coming and treating the Lord's table like some ordinary meal. Don't you have houses to eat your ordinary meal in? Don't you know that this is something special? This is something for the bride of Christ? This is something I've set apart? You're treating it like it's just something you would do at home. Well, you know, a good show's on. We won't pray. We'll just grab some food. Um, we'll sit around the TV. And You've brought that into the church. He's showing that they've, they've not treated the table as God wanted it to. hard, isn't it? You've robbed God of his glory. You've not made his ordinances special and worshipful. You're driven by your appetite instead of the worship of God. And look, he says, look at this, you despise the church of God. End of, end of the verse, he says, what shall I say? Shall I praise you? And this is the second time he says, I will not praise you. It seems Paul is at a loss to express himself of their perversion of the fellowship meal and the table and I believe Paul's goal is that they themselves would admit that they were unworthy of praise. And he marks it with, I can't praise you. Well, I've got to wrap this up because we've got to sing that really cool song that, that introduced to us. But we're going to get into this more. And I, I, I know this was, because I try to stay in the text, and I know this is challenging because it's a heavy rebuke. And next week we're going to see the beauty of the Lord's table and a great reminder of that. But let me just ask you a question before we quit here. Why'd you come to church today? Why are you here? 
tradition, routine. Maybe God will bless your business or heal you or do whatever. Or did you come to worship? See, the elders here have modeled what we saw the early church do. We, we sing. We fellowship. We remember the gospel. We preach the word of God. We, we, we've come together to sense the blessing of God on this people called His body, His bride. And what we've done here today creates unity and love when we worship together and we hold to His Word. And I, and I want to encourage you today that you have a church that loves Christ and loves the Word. And we want you to love Christ and love the Word. And we, want, we want that to spread among us and we want to not have a letter like this ever written to us. We want to be a church that is an example of joy and their delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be the Hebrews group that holds fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promises faithful, we want to hold to that and we want to consider how we're going to stimulate one another to good deeds. Is that what we want to do? That's what is so different. And I thank the Lord for a church that desires those things. Father, we thank you for our time in the word. This is quite a passage. It is a level of rebuke that probably is not heard in modern days. But Lord, it is a rebuke to Corinth, but a warning to us that we would lose our way. We would not be the worshipers you intended us to be, Lord, and we would find ourselves fractured and divided. Lord, we want to be together. We want our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the head, the center of all things, and our worship, our teaching, and our fellowship, the table, baptisms, all of those things for Him to be the center. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us maintain that in our personal relationships and our corporate relationship here, Lord. And may you be blessed by all that's been said, sung, and done here today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.